back. This is the second episode of Women's Economic Rights Around the World. Last episode, with the help of some great articles, I introduced the concept of women's economic rights and why it is an important facet of the international human rights debate. For this episode, I'm going to revisit some of the ideas of the last episode and discuss some new ones, and I'm also covering fewer articles, but hopefully spending and focusing more time on an in-depth take on each one. To begin, last time we talked about the idea that communism or socialism had ideals that furthered women's economic rights. This reminded me of the example of East and West Germany. After World War II, half of Germany was taken over by a Western capitalist system, while the other half was under the influence of socialist views. I found the article, Political Economic Regimes and Attitudes, Female Workers Under State Socialism by Pamela Campa and Michelle Serafinelli that investigated how state socialist regimes promoted women's economic inclusion. Campa and Serafinelli found that East Germany women are more likely to place importance on career success compared to women from West Germany, and that the population at large in East Germany is less likely to hold traditional gender role attitudes. They found that the change in attitudes under East German regime was larger in areas where the growth in female employment was larger. This proves to be an interesting case study because the demographics of the country were reasonably the same. So you got to see how what values and ways of life changed because of socialist ideas. Kemp and Serafinelli wrote that during the late 1940s and up to the late 1960s, state socialist governments throughout the Central and Eastern Europe region made efforts to promote women's economic inclusion and their rapid industrialization and general plan for economic growth, which was based on an intensive use of labor, were dependent on such inclusion. Like we talked about last episode, women's participation in the workforce is essential to economic development. Furthermore, women's economic independence was seen as a necessary precondition for women's equality, a sentiment that I a principle, sorry, uh, to which governments were arguably committed. This is a sentiment that I've discussed previously, and uh, when women make their own money, they have more power. To continue, these socialist regimes made legal changes, such as the adoption of the principle of equal work under equal conditions, new family laws, and education and training policies, and easy access to abortion also helped women's entry into the workforce. I honestly never knew that this was the case for socialist countries during this time period, but abortion is an important part of family planning and women's ability to decide when they have children is essential to the pursuit of economic rights. The article stressed that before 1945, the political economic system was the same in East and West Germany, and that after 1945, East Germany focused particularly during the 1960s on policies that favored female qualified employment while West Germany encouraged a system in which women either stayed home after they had children or were funneled into part-time employment after an extended break. Kempa and Serafinelli found in their research that the East-West difference for women versus men in attitudes and employment appears to persist after reunification. So even after Germany became one country and the East German women were integrated into the capitalist system, they still largely kept their socialist views. I found this very interesting because I would want to know how women operated in a capitalist world when they had gotten so used to an emphasis on women in the workplace. 
would they interact with the men and women that didn't share the same beliefs about uh, a woman's place? How would they respond? Would they have worked to convince other women of the ways that women's ideas were a disservice to them? Or, sorry, Western ideas were a disservice to them? Or would they have just learned to readopt those Western ideas? The authors also found that the change in women's attitudes toward work was larger in areas where the change in female employment was larger. This wasn't something that I had considered. Women were able to see how working really improved the lives of women around them, and they made their personal decision about pursuing work in part due to that. They also found that state propaganda that encouraged women to join the labor force and the socialist education system that taught them about the benefits of the socialist system contributed to higher female workforce participation in the country. Finally, the authors stated that they found East Germans are unequivocally less traditional than West Germans. I think the phrasing of this is very thought-provoking. I've always tied Western and capitalist ideas to progress, you know, breaking away from the constraints of the thinking of the past, but this article makes a very compelling argument for the opposite. On a lighter note, I want to talk about the idea of microfinance and how it relates to women's economic rights. To help me explain this concept, I'm referencing the article Understanding the Impact of a Microfinance-Based Intervention on Women's Empowerment and the Reduction of Intimate Partner Violence in South Africa by Kim et al. I was excited to read this article because I have a personal interest in microfinance. My mom has always been a feminist and likes to learn about events that are happening around the world. When I was young, she discovered microfinance and was so amazed with the possibilities that she could help women. She said that microfinance was about seeing how a small amount of money could make a big change in someone's life. She taught me how important it is for women to be able to have their own money and manage their own expenses. The research that she found said that if you give a man money, he is more likely to take a risk with it to make more money and might lose it all. However, the research found that a woman is more likely to take that money and invest it in something stable, like buying an important machine for her business or an animal for a farm. The point was that investing in women was a way to invest in stable development and the improvement of lives. I don't know if this research has held up, but it has always really stuck with me. She loved the idea that you can make a real impact in a woman's life even though you've never met. I think that this might have been the start of my interest in women's economic rights and how they play into the larger human rights debate. This article looked at a study to see if microfinancing had an impact on women's empowerment and if it would lower intimate partner violence, or IPV, in rural South Africa. Kim et al. writes that violence against women is an explicit manifestation of gender inequality and is increasingly becoming, being recognized as an important risk factor for a range of poor health and economic development outcomes. The article discusses how many studies have found that women who live in poverty are more likely to experience such violence and the fundamental link between violence and the continued subordinate status of women in society is also well recognized. The article's program, Intervention with Microfinance for AIDS and Gender, Gender Equity, or IMAGE, put on the study to see if combining microfinance-based poverty alleviation programs with participatory training on HIV risk and prevention, gender norms, domestic violence, and sexuality can improve women's economic well-being, can empower women, and lead to reductions in intimate partner violence, or IPV.
The article defines microfinance as a development strategy that provides credit and saving services to poor, particularly rural women, for income-generating projects. The argument is that microfinance can be an effective vehicle for women's empowerment and newly acquired business skills may lead to improvements in self-esteem and self-confidence. Furthermore, the article emphasizes that improvements have been seen in child mortality, nutrition, immunization coverage, and contraceptive use. However, this situation isn't as simple as cause and effect. The relation between microfinance and women's empowerment is complex. Providing women money does not guarantee their control over its use, and the pressure to pay back loans can be added stress to their situations. The article makes the good point that empowering women can lead to conflict in the home as well. The Small Enterprise Foundation, a South African non-governmental organization implemented the microfinance com component of image intervention and identified women aged 18 years and older who lived in the poorest households in each village. From there, 33 groups of five women served as the guarantors for each other's loans, and all five must repair their loans before the group qualifies for more credit. I thought this was fascinating. You put women in a group where they are dependent on each other for success, so they support one another and can share ideas, rather than having women being isolated while they are trying out loans and business ideas. So if one woman was struggling, it would be in the other's best interest to help her and perhaps important social bonds and friendships could be formed. This, the article didn't specifically discuss this, but I like to think that it happened. Furthermore. A participatory learning program called Sister for Life was implemented where eligible loan recipients went to 10 one-hour training sessions that covered topics including gender roles, cultural beliefs, relationships, communication, domestic violence, and HIV infection, and aimed to strengthen communication skills, critical thinking, and leadership because they found that group-based learning can foster solidarity and collective action. From there, women deemed natural leaders by their peers elected by loan centers to were elected by loan centers to undertake a further week of training which is so cool approximately 1750 loans were dispersed over 3 years up to uh, 290,000 US dollars and these loans were usually used to support retail businesses such as fruit vending or tailoring businesses repayment rates were 99.7% when determining whether these loans improved lives, the study found that there was no equivalent word for empowerment in the local language, and that rather, women used phrases such as the power to be enlightened, or the ability to claim personal power and use it to change for the better to express this concept. Economic well-being was emphasized, but one woman pointed out that you can have money and still not be empowered which is a good point and brings up the complexity of the situation again. The article stated that participation was associated with greater self-confidence and financial confidence, as well as more progressive attitudes toward gender norms. Compared with women in the control group, women in the intervention group reported higher levels of autonomy and decision-making, greater valuation of their household contribution by their partners, improved household communication, and better relationships with their partners. The article noted that empowering women through interventions such as microfinance may exasperate the risk of violence. However, this risk may diminish over time. 
In conclusion, the study found that initiatives aiming to empower individuals and communities can contribute to measurable health outcomes and that such empowerment can form part of a viable public health strategy. This brings up a point I made last episode about the link between women's economic rights and their health. When women don't have money, their health depreciates. So, of course, we are talking about empowering women and self-confidence, but it is important to remember the other impacts of an increase in women's economic rights, such as the impact on their health. I found an interesting article, Globalization, Women's Economic Rights and Forced Labor, by Eric Numair and Indra de Sosa. This article concerned how women are disadvantaged by the changing trends that are associated with the idea of globalization. Numair and de Sosa write that there are, has been concern that globalization is detrimental for what are called core or fundamental labor rights. The main concerns of the article are women's economic rights and the occurrence of forced labor. The article focuses on the economic experiences of women who face discrimination in the workforce. Numair and de Sosa emphasize, like other articles that I have covered, that women's economic empowerment is seen as an important step for the development of all countries. The International Labor Organization, or ILO, has declared four labor rights as fundamental, and the elimination of all forms of forced or compulsory labor is one of them. Compulsory or forced labor is classified by the ILO in eight categories, such as slavery and abduction, compulsory participation in public works, coercive recruitment practices in agricultural and remote rural areas, bonded domestic work, debt bondage, exaction or forced labor by the military, trafficking for sexual and economic exploitation, and lastly, prison labor. These acts can be carried out by state or by prison agents, private agents, for financial gain. The ILO estimates that there are between 9.8 and 14.8 million forced laborers in the world that fall into these categories. More broadly, forced labor is all work or service that a person does because they are under threat and would not have done voluntarily. The accepted form of forced labor is military service during times of emergencies like the draft during World War I and World War II. The abolition of forced labor convention number 105 from 1957 was concerned with the use of forced labor for political objectives and to suppress the demands from labor groups. This occurrence received a lot of attention in the late 90s when the ILO investigated Myanmar's alleged use of forced labor after receiving complaints from workers. In November 2000, the ILO asked its members member countries to seize relationships with Myanmar because of the country's systematic use of forced labor. Article emphasizes that while there has been research on the effects of globalization on women's participation in the workforce, this isn't an ideal measure of economic discrimination against women. An increase in female employment from trade liberalization doesn't necessarily lower discrimination and isn't necessarily beneficial for women. Numair and de Sosa make the argument that the gender wage gap is a better and more direct measure of discrimination against women. Their second focus on the, of the effect that globalization has on forced labor hasn't been properly researched before. Numair and de Sosa write that compulsory labor can be interpreted as an extreme form of wage discrimination, and many of the arguments that relate to economic discrimination against women can be applied to forced labor as well. The article draws on 
the traditional Heckscher-Ohen type trade theory that predicts that trade liberalization will increase female employment in developing countries. Globalization is probably not the only factor behind the rise in female employment in developing countries in recent years, but most studies argue that the integration of developing countries in the world economy has been an important factor. However, as stated above, globalization is not always beneficial to women's economic rights. In developing countries that are predominantly agrarian, globalization has shifted toward cash crop production for exports, which negatively impacts women who are predominantly employed in small, non-export-oriented farms. Like previous articles that I have looked at for this podcast, Numair and DeSosa emphasize that the factors that contribute to globalization can exasperate women's unequal share of unpaid domestic work. So just because women have entered the workforce on a wider scale doesn't necessarily mean that women's status or welfare improved in any meaningful way, either in absolute term- terms or relative to men. The article makes the point that globalization increases competition, which means that wages need to be kept down to cut costs. This affects women because they mainly work in sectors that are heavily affected by foreign competition. Competition also relates to articles other focused on compulsory labor. The article explained that multinational companies use forced labor as a cost-saving strategy. Numair and DeSosa also make the argument that modernization and globalization of the world economy have destroyed family and small-scale substance farming, with the consequence that sometimes farmers end up in forced agricultural labor. The article states that foreign investors would be attracted to forced labor, low female wages, and poor occupational conditions because of those low costs for the companies. The article made the argument that besides trade openness and foreign direct investment, other features of globalization such as easier and cheaper travel and communication can increase the incidence of forced labor in the form of sexual and other trafficking of people to developed countries. However, on the bright side, the article included that, fact, the, that the factors associated with globalization have lowered the incidence of child labor. In conclusion, Numer and DeSosa state that it is entirely possible that globalization boosts the bargaining power of capital at the expense of labor, which would put downward pressure on outcome-related labor standards such as wages, working times, and other employment conditions. However, the article found a lot of evidence that globalization has more beneficial rather than harmful effects due to trade liberalization and an increase in foreign direct investment. So that will be it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening.